Miss the show, no worries. We have got you covered on our podcast. On point tonight, it is a busy one. We lay out the case of Christine Jessup and who police believe killed her. We'll talk with a lawyer who ultimately got Guy Paul Morin's freedom and overturned the conviction. We'll talk about the games the Liberals are playing to block information on Wii payments. What are they trying to hide and why won't they stop? trying to obstruct committee hearings and the censorship games that social media companies are playing and why it's so dangerous. We had a lot to talk about, so let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. On Friday, October 9th, 2020, we positively confirmed the identification of the person responsible for the DNA sample found on Christine's underwear. Calvin Hoover of Toronto, Ontario, was 28 years old in 1984. He was known to the Jessup family at the time of Christine's disappearance. He died in 2015. However, if he, he were alive today, the Toronto Police Service would arrest Calvin Hoover for the murder of Christine Jessup. 36 years later, thanks to a genealogy kit, we now know Christine Jessup's killer. Alex Pearson with you on this uh, pretty unbelievable Thursday, October 15th. And it has been a huge, huge news day. I mean, the show I was prepping is not the show I'm delivering now. But, you know, when I woke up, I wasn't expecting this news. I actually never thought that they would solve this particular case. Uh, And I was 13 when Christine Jessup's uh, crooked little toothy smile would appear. I mean, it was one of those cases that everyone talked about. It was that kind of case where parents were sitting down with their kids and warning us about strangers. And ultimately, this was a case that would destroy many lives over the last uh, almost four decades. None more so than, of course, the Jessup family, including her brother, Kenny. And he was just seven years old when he last saw Christine. And he spoke with Global News and learned, of course, of the new information today when police arrived at his home. It's an absolute miracle. And the investigators that are sitting in my mother's apartment with her right now, I owe them everything. I owe them everything. I lost faith in them. I've emailed them and yelled at them. (laughs) And you know what? They never stopped. And I owe them everything. We owe them everything for solving this. And Christine was just nine when she would disappear uh, in her Queensville area home. And that's just north of Newmarket. And she'd been dropped off by the school bus, by her home. She went in, dropped her bag off, and she was supposed to meet a little friend, and they were going to go off to the store, of course, to buy bubblegum, because what else do you do when you're a 13-year-old? And her mom, Janet, and her brother, Kenny, had just come home from visiting Christine's dad, who at that time uh, was in jail, and they started looking for her, but it would end up taking three months before her body would end up being found December 31st in a, a small town called Sunderland, and of course, she had been raped and stabbed to death. And of course, the news we get today, uh, as Chief Raymore says, while people are, are happy with it, it, it's it's not good news. There's nothing I can say today that can reverse the tragic events of 36 years ago. There are no winners in this announcement, and this is not a reason to celebrate. It does, however, allow us to take a major step forward in our efforts to bring justice to Christine's family. 
So Guy Paul Moran, who we have heard year after year after year, I mean, he was charged and convicted in Christine's killing. He would be acquitted in his first trial, but then the Crown appealed on the grounds the judge had prejudiced the Crown's right to a fair trial. So he ended up getting ordered back to trial in 1987. And then that thing got mired in delays and appeals and, and all sorts of legal quagmires until 1992. But his second trial would end up in conviction where he'd be handed a life sentence and sent off to the Kingston pen, which of course doesn't exist anymore. But he was put into general population, which if you're an accused child killer is not the place you want to be. So there was no protection even offered for him. And it wouldn't be until 1995 when we started to get improved DNA technology that his conviction would be overturned and he was released and then ended up getting a paltry $1.25 million. But, you know, you think about what he and his family lost, the years of their life. And of course, with no other suspect name, this has completely overshadowed his entire life. And for the Jessup family, it's meant 40 years of not knowing who killed their little girl. And of course, as we're learning, it would end up being someone close to the family that Kenny knew. His wife worked with my father, and uh, they were friends, and I, Christine and I would go down and play with their kids. Their kids would come up and play, you know, fairly close relationship. And ultimately, it would be a genealogy kit that would uh, finally link Calvin Hoover to the Jessup family, to Christine Jessup. But from the day she disappeared, and take a listen to this. Kenny always believed he knew it was someone who knew Christine. Even 35 years later, you think about it every day. Was it this person? Are the police doing enough to search this person? Is it that person? Is it? I, I, from day one, truly believed it was someone that knew our family, knew my dad was in jail, and knew that we were going to visit him that day. And that came down to four people because he no doubt used the line to Christine of, I'm going to take you to see your father. Your mother and brother sent me to see, because she couldn't go that day. She was too young. That's why the bike was thrown down in the garage. That's why she ran in to show her dad the brand new recorder she'd just gotten. Wow. He, he used that line. I've said that from day one. You can hear that catch in his throat, you know, 36 years later, and it still uh, still affects him. And at the time, and it hasn't been really widely reported, but Robert, um, uh, Christine's father, was serving a custodial sentence for a white-collar offense, and he was released on compassionate grounds shortly after Christine went missing. And, of course, she was too young to go and visit. But it's just, a, it's just an unbelievable, unexpected turn on a cold case that... Uh, I think likely most of us thought had been, you know, shelved and collecting dust all this time, but clearly it was being, you know, worked on. Um, and police are looking for more information on Calvin Hoover. Like, who is he? Did he act alone? Did he ever tell anybody? Did his partner know anything? So as much as this case is closed, it is not. And so we'll be hearing about new information probably in the days and months to come. Our investigators met with Christine's mother this morning, and they continue to be with her at this moment. We have also met with Mr. Marin this morning and have shared this news with him. I believe there is no greater acknowledgement of his exoneration than the continued efforts of the Toronto Police Service to identify the person responsible for Christine's murder.
And imagine how the Jessup family feels. And then you think of the other side. You imagine what a, a guy like Guy Paul Moran is feeling today. Not only did he get sent to prison for a crime he did not commit, but he was labeled a child killer who went into general population where he basically fended for himself. But up until today, even with this case you know, thrown out with no other suspect name, he has lived for 36 years under a cloud of suspicion that, you know, he killed nine-year-old Christine Jessup. And had it not been for my next guest, Mr. Moran may never have truly gotten his freedom. James Lockyer is a defense lawyer with Lockyer Campbell Posner. He's the founding director of the association in the defense of the wrongfully accused and was also Guy, Par- Guy Paul Moran's lawyer. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. Nice to be here. Well, you know, it's unbelievable, this turn of events, but, um, you know, Mr. Moran was acquitted, um, ultimately, thanks to you stepping in. But I can only imagine the burden that he has carried for 36 years that today finally really frees him of his connection to Christine Jessup. I mean, uh, that is a lot for him. Yeah, I, I mean, I spoke to him this morning uh, when I heard the news that was coming and indeed after he had spoken to the police and uh, the, the, you, you could hear you know, the, the relief in his, in his voice. Um, we all came to know the, uh, the Jessops uh, at the public inquiry, especially uh, uh, Christine's mother and, and her brother. And, uh, you know, we were, we were thinking about uh, the very thing you were just saying, how could the family feel uh, and how would they be feeling today? And, 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 and I hope that uh, this has uh, at least uh, lifted a little bit of the, little bit off off them uh, maybe it's it, it's a crumb of comfort for them um but uh, uh and for Guy paul as well it it, it is uh, comforting to know that the right person has finally uh, been identified the person who uh, who killed uh, who raped and murdered uh, christine dna ultimately exonerated mr moran his first lawyer uh, almost had him cut a deal um, he has paid an enormous price, and he was given some money, $1.25 million, which doesn't seem, you know, nearly enough. But he's paid an extraordinary price for something he didn't didn't do, because ultimately being labeled that kind of person, a child killer, it just doesn't go away, even if, you know, the headlines say exoneration. It's something that you carry with you. Well, I don't think you necessarily carry it with I don't think he carries it with him. Maybe other people carry right. it, and they shouldn't. But, uh, you know, he's gone on to really uh, have a great life. He's, uh, uh, he's uh, been married for, God, uh, 20 years, I should think now, or more. And, yeah, more. And uh, he has two uh, lovely boys who are now in their t- early 20s. And, and uh, he really has uh, done extraordinarily well, considering the awful experience uh, he went through. He, he was very lucky. Uh, when he was convicted, there was a... Uh, a fair bit of media, a lot of media, actually, around mm-hmm. uh, his possible innocence. And uh, Kirk Makin, a Globe reporter, wrote a, a book about the case uh, that came out very quickly that cast doubt on on uh, his conviction. And uh, he ended up in Kingston Penitentiary, which is no longer there. Actually, it's been closed now. Um, and uh, the um, uh, the uh, the inmates in Kingston Penitentiary. Uh, uh, came to the conclusion that he was uh, likely innocent, so he uh, he did okay uh, uh, there while he was there. He wasn't there 
he was only there a few months because we did manage to get him bail pending his appeal. But uh, um, he held his head up high and, and uh, he never wavered in his, his, uh, his innocence. And uh, he's, he's a great guy. I mean, this case, when you look back at it, I mean, there have been inquiries and all sorts of investigations into it because it was botched from the start. And and it's clear the police didn't really want to get into that today for obvious reasons. But there were so many mistakes by so many different areas, either the police who seemed to get real tunnel vision and and targeted Moran because, you know, he was, quote unquote, you know, awkward. He kind of was an outlier. But then there were forensics mistakes made with uh, things like hair and fiber evidence. There were also mistakes made by the prosecution. I mean, a lot Allowing things like jailhouse testimony into the to the case, there were issues with um, false statements from office officers. But you know, it, it's one of those cases that um, right from the start it was it was so problematic. Was it obvious to you when you saw you know and put this together that you had to step in? Well, yeah, I stepped. I, I was. This, I, I mean, I I did. I guess you could say I stepped in, but. Um, it, it's a case, uh, you know, I've done a number of wrongful conviction cases, um, and, and Guy Paul's was really my first that I really got into. So he had a big influence on my, my career and, and, and my life. And, uh, uh, you know, his, his case did reek of wrongful conviction when the prosecution has to use jailhouse informants, as you just mm-hmm. pointed out, you know, they've got trouble when they have to use, uh, one of the jailhouse informants had a, a, a disgusting uh, record for sex crimes, and he was given all sorts of consideration uh, for one he still had that he was still facing. Um, and yet, you know, they use him uh, in his claim that Guy Paul confessed to him in the, in the Whitby jail. Um, so, you know, that the case did reek of wrongful conviction. And uh, I can tell you right from the outset, I had no doubts that uh, uh, Guy Paul was innocent. And, and and I know it's often been said he's strange and weird. He really isn't. The only strange thing about him is he's got a magnificent sense of humor. Um, he, uh, he he always makes you laugh. Uh, and uh, he, he's, he, as I say, he's, uh, he's really a, a very fine human being. How does one keep their sense of humor um, when they're up against a, a system that was clearly broken, but uh, with such serious allegations? Well, maybe... maybe uh, Maybe the better question is that he managed to survive it because he had a sense of humor. It was kind of an essential way for him to get through this mess. Um, and and, uh, and you're, you're quite right. I mean, the, uh, the police uh, and the Center of Forensic Science played a huge role in his uh, wrongful conviction. But uh, God bless them, the Center of Forensic Science have also, from what the officer said today, the police officer said today, have played a, a huge role in... Uh, uh, in finding the right person as well. And is there any kind of bond between um, Mr. Moran and, and the Jessup family? Do they feel some kind of connection? Uh, they they have not kept in touch, uh, as far as I know. Uh, but there was uh, uh, there was a bond of sorts. Yes, at the uh, public inquiry. I mean, it, it, obviously, it was a very strange position for for both of them. There's uh, Guy Paul's being exonerated through DNA testing. Uh, the Jessops, of course, uh, because of uh, the police conduct, were convinced for years that Guy Paul uh, was uh, the person responsible for their daughter's uh, uh, death. Um, but they, they did come together. There was a, they, 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 did, they did talk uh, 
and they did get along during that uh, uh, that public inquiry. It, it, it was good to see. But it really was this case that not only uh, put you in the light um, and the man kind of everyone turns to for the wrongfully accused, because I've covered a couple of your um, your, your your trials, but, uh, you know, this kind of shed a light on the numerous problems in the system um, and really launched you into this, uh, you know, getting many, many people uh, out uh, from wrongful convictions, be it uh, James Driscoll, there's Robert Boltovich, of course, Stephen Truscott. I mean, it was really it started with with Guy Paul Moran. Am, am I correct? Well, it was. Yeah, I, I, Guy yeah. Paul Moran, uh, a, a group of uh, just concerned citizens formed around him when he was convicted uh, and formed what they what was called the Guy Paul Moran Defense Committee, and uh, the Guy Paul Moran Defense Committee then morphed into the Association in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted, which today is known as Innocence Canada. So uh, you, you said I founded the Association in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted. Uh, perhaps it might be better to say Keith Paul Moran founded it. <laughs> there must be, though, I mean, I know you're a lawyer, and I know you're not supposed to have any feelings and all. It must, it must be um, not just a relief, but it must give you a great sense of satisfaction knowing that a, a wrong, an obvious wrong, has been righted. Oh, it does, and, and and don't think lawyers don't have feelings. Uh, I, uh, I, well, I know I'm you don't emotional. like to show them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very emotional uh, in these cases, and it's not the first case we've had mm-hmm. uh, where uh, the, the wrong person was convicted and eventually uh, the right person was apprehended. Uh, uh, David Milgard uh, was mm-hmm. it was a classic example of that. Uh, spent 23 years in jail for the again rape murder of of uh, Gail Miller and. Uh, 28 years later, uh, uh, DNA established that uh, Larry Fisher was the one who uh, who had killed her. He was then prosecuted and himself convicted of the murder some 30 years after the crime and, and died in prison, uh, serving his life sentence. Uh, and we've had a couple of other very similar type cases where um, post-conviction DNA testing has, has done two things at once, so to speak. It's both shown the person who who's been convicted of it, didn't do it, and also shown who did do it at the same time. Because that's an important feature of a wrongful conviction. If if you've got the wrong person convicted, then it means the right person's still out there, uh, not only having committed that crime, but potentially having committed, carrying on committing more crimes. Mr. Lockyer, I thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. I know your phone's been absolutely ringing off the hook, but uh, I very much... No, no, don't apologize. It's uh, it's not bad to be a popular guy, but I do very much appreciate you sharing your thoughts and giving us some insight into this. Thank you very much. Okay, it was a pleasure. Bye-bye. That is James Lockyer, and uh, if you're ever in trouble, he's one of the guys you want on your Rolodex. I've cover, covered a couple of his uh, trials, uh, certainly pertaining to Dr. Smith, the uh, disgraced pathologist who ended up sending a number of people to jail wrongfully accused, and he's quite something to watch in the courtroom. But uh, very interesting view from the other side. You know, if there's nothing to hide, then why do the Liberals refuse to hand over the Ethics Committee uh, documents that they have a right to see? Justin Trudeau has been saying that his government is focused on Canadians, but three days in, it is very clear that they're playing games and doing whatever they can to make sure whatever is in those documents regarding we payments to his family don't actually see the light of day. It is not a good look. And I know Mr. Trudeau seems very uh, offended that the uh, opposition keep bringing it up, but I guess he seems to forget that is their job. But 
what is being hidden. I want to bring in Michael Barrett to this conversation. He is the ethics critic. Good to have you, Mr. Barrett. Thanks for having me on. And I, I keep checking for updates. This thing has been going on all day. This has been like a marathon ethics committee session. Is it still going on or is it shut down for the night? No, we're six uh, um, we're six hours in, six hours plus into the meeting, and it's it's going on right now. Have you gotten anything accomplished? Uh, we've we've received um, a lot of sanctimony from uh, liberal members uh, about why we ought not to ask uh, for uh, accountability on a program that saw half a billion dollars uh, to be uh, administered by an organization that gave the prime minister's family half a million dollars. And so uh, nothing in the way of movement. And um, they've, they've said that uh, they're content to uh, continue in this vein instead of uh, working to uh, you know, serve Canadians. So what is the rationale that, that these, do- I mean, these are documents that, the, that, that you and other committee members have a right to see. What is the rationale of, of why they won't just put them out other than the obvious? Well, they've said that um, asking for information about members, uh, you know, the speaking information with respect to members of uh, the prime minister's family um, is is a fishing expedition. But we know that uh, we know that those family members received uh, at at least a half a million dollars from this organization, which then was awarded this sole sourced agreement to administer half a billion dollars. And so we're, we're we've heard. Uh, at first, we were told that uh, nobody was paid. Then we then we heard that they were paid something. Then we learned that it was only members of the Trudeau family who've been paid by this organization. They they didn't pay, uh, you know, people like Julie Black or Theo Fleury who come to, you know, the WE organization wouldn't pay them. They, they, they told Theo Fleury, for example, when he came uh, and spoke at WE Day, oh, we don't pay our speakers, but they do pay members of the Trudeau family. So um, so the argument that there's, there's no connection here uh, is... Um, it just doesn't hold water. So if the the object is to filibuster and basically run out the clock and delay and delay, how long can this go on? I mean, where does it go after this particular marathon of a day uh, goes? Do we just continue this charade? Well, the opposition has uh, we uh, you know the conservatives have said we're we're going to we're prepared to continue um, continue debate on this. Let the let the liberals uh, continue to talk out the clock basically until bells ring next week. Uh, in the House of Commons, when bells ring um, on uh, on Monday night for a vote, uh, then uh, the committee would be suspended and then could resume afterwards. I expect that prior to that, um, uh, you know, there, there some circumstance will arise where the meeting will have to be uh, suspended or adjourned until Monday. Uh, but uh, we've also said this week that um, the Conservatives have said we're, we're calling for an anti-corruption committee to be formed. So there are discussions between the opposition parties, the Bloc Quebecois, the NDP, and the Conservatives on how to move forward with that, because both of the other opposition parties have proposed something similar. And uh, because it's it's not just we charity at this point. Now we've got, uh, you know, um, questionable contracts to um, former Liberal members uh, for uh, ventilators, Frank Bayless. Uh, we've We've got a, a you know a, a number of things. The prime minister's chief of staff's husband's company being uh, you know asked to administer the rent the the rent relief program um, when he wasn't registered to lobby things like that. So there are a number of things related to the pandemic where there's questions about how the liberals had you know conducted business and spent taxpayer dollars, and uh, it just looks like getting getting to the bottom of this at committees. Uh, you know the finance committee is in the midst of a 
of a filibuster at the exact same time. That, that meeting has been technically ongoing for a week. Uh, it was suspended for several days. Uh, and, and now they're, they're several hours in to, uh, to the resumption of that meeting as well. And what's that one looking into? I've, I've lost track of which one is looking into what. Well, that one it, it is with respect to the documents that were illegally redacted by the government, yes. which they, they blamed the parliamentary law clerk who right. then wrote a letter and said, uh, nope, uh, we, I didn't redact it, the government did. Well, I mean, either they're very, very sure that there is nothing to see, or they're going to look very, very foolish, um, you know, defending uh, what is could be appalling. But either way, when you're a Canadian looking in on this kind of, uh, you know, these kind of shenanigans, when, when we're at such a serious and dire time in this country, frankly, and I get the emails from people, it is um, not just infuriating, it's uh, it's unacceptable. Well, that's right. And, and I, the best case here... Uh, for Canadians and for our democratic institutions is that we get the information. There's, you know, there's nothing to see here and we move on. And then Canadians can have confidence in whatever programs this government is going to roll out uh, in in the coming weeks and months. But when there's this cloud hanging over everything, because we we don't know, and the government went to such great lengths to hide what was in there. um, I mean, at this point, it is very reasonable to assume that there's explosive information the government doesn't want Canadians to see. And and so uh, I think that, you know, forming a special committee, uh, an anti-corruption committee is is important. But it it really is uh, it really is a spectacle uh, to see, you know, um, six and a half hours at nine o'clock at night uh, that we have liberals reading the newspaper into the record and reading briefing notes into the record uh, just so that debate doesn't collapse. And there has to be a vote on the motion. There you, well, it speaks to a lot of arrogance, but uh, nonetheless, better get back to it. So I appreciate you uh, interrupting it and joining us. Thank you. Thanks very much, Alex. Take care. That is Michael Barrett, who is the uh, ethics critic. And uh, there you go. So the next time you hear that uh, Mr. Trudeau is focused on helping Canadians, you know that is a nothing more than a load of horse hooey. I want to dive into this whole Twitter New York Post issue. And for me, this is not about the content of the story. It is that these social media companies that call themselves neutral or open platforms, they really aren't. And in killing this story, the Hunter Biden story that the New York Post ran, they've not only exposed their bias, but they are censoring information that we have a right to read. And sure, they can argue all they want that it didn't meet their editorial standards. But uh, since when did Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsett have editorial standards? They are not publishers. And it's not about whether you like the New York Post or not, and it is a major publication. It's that if they can silence them, then who's next? And if they take such exception to this particular story, then why do they let China and Russia spew out propaganda unchecked? I mean, just yesterday, the Ayatollah Khomeini tweeted, quote, if Iran wanted to acquire a nuclear weapon, no one could prevent it. So nuclear threats are okay. But a whistleblower story on Hunter Biden isn't? Let's talk about this. Jim Turk is director at the Center for Free Expression, Faculty of Communications and Design at Ryerson University. Good to have you, Professor. Thank you, Alex. Nice to be here. This, to me, is um, plain and simple censorship, and you can correct me where I'm wrong, but we we seem to be getting very co- you know comfortable with this. And I think allowing it is not just dangerous, and we do this to our own uh, detriment. But, you know, if the Post gets the facts wrong, if a publication gets the facts wrong, isn't it up to their lawyers and the Bidens or the story, um, you know, 
the subject of the story to settle? Well, we have a complicated problem these days uh, with as a result of social media. Uh, there's always been what Trump calls false news. There's always been uh, uh, conspiracy theories. There's been all sorts of controversial views put out. But never before in our in the history of the human race has there been the ability to have it transmitted across the whole globe and for hundreds, thousands, or even millions of people to see somebody's post or somebody's views. Um, and so um, what, I mean, stuff goes out on social media uh, all over the place, some really harmful stuff that can cost mm-hmm. lives. Um, and so what do we do about that? And a lot of people doing government say, well, we want uh, Twitter and Facebook to be the censors. Well, I, for one, am not comfortable with private for profit corporations determining what I can read and what I can't read. Mm-hmm. Um, and that may not have been a problem in the days, you know, 25, 40 years ago when we had newspapers because they always censored stuff and included some things and other things. But they didn't affect what 90 percent of the people see, whereas social, a handful of social media giants really does uh, account for the bulk of what most of us see daily. Uh, so it's a, a big issue. And so the you know the uh, issue you're raising with the New York Post uh, allegation, they got some emails, and uh, I think Twitter said that they took it down because they were hacked information. Well, that's, that's not honest because um, Edward Snowden's uh, material is hacked information. Daniel Ellsberg in the, mm-hmm. in the 1970s. Journalists rely all the time on, on information that's achieved in various ways. So that that doesn't pass the smell test, in my view. Uh, but on the other hand, the uh, stuff that was released has been shown to be false uh, by the FBI, by even two Senate uh, Republican-controlled U.S. Senate committees found it to be false. So it is false. Do we deal with it by censoring it? And like you, I, I think that's probably not the right way to try to deal with it. And I certainly don't uh, I'm not interested in turning over control of censorship to Twitter and Facebook. No. And, and what they how do we what, do, you know, what do we do about stuff like that? Well, you know, Biden can sue. Uh, it's already been shown to be wrong, but it's going to get spread around. What's more worrisome to me are like the story that came out this morning. Uh, the White House is pushing the view and has some scientists who it's uh, talking about who say, well, we don't have to worry about all this coronavirus stuff. We just need herd immunity. We just have to let enough people get it, and the problem will go away. And if we get 20% of the population who's had it, then we'll all be safe. I mean, that's utterly and totally false, and will mean tens of thousands in Canada and hundreds of thousands of deaths in the United States. It's just totally false. It gets spread on social media. How do we deal with it? Um, And I don't know the answer to that question, because you can't censor it away. And yet it's harmful. So as a society, how do we deal with it? I think that's a problem. And that's why I'm glad you're having this program. It's a problem we as a society have to wrestle with. Well, it is. But it's also, you know, A, you drive it underground. B, um, you know, you make the story much bigger by by yanking it out. But you can't call yourself an open forum if you're then going to turn around and tell people what they can and can't do. So in other words, uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook then should 
call themselves publishers and create their own editorial team and their own editorial standards, just like newsrooms do, um, and operate that way. Because um, again, otherwise, they are simply taking control of a narrative and showing a bias. And if it's your bias, your you know the if it's if it falls in your bias, I guess it's great. But it, it's it, now it's the New York Post, but tomorrow it'll be the New York Times. I mean, it, 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 yeah. I mean, first of all, Twitter and Facebook have no desire to be seen as publishers. Right. Uh, they fought that definition the uh, for for a long time, and for the most part, they are publishers. I mean, they're they make money by all the stuff we post for free, and the information they get about us that they then sell to advertisers. That's how they make their money, and they make their money by keeping keeping people's eyes on their platforms, and they do that mm-hmm. by having controversial stuff. So they have no interest in in. Uh, being serious censors, they only get pushed to censorship when there's enough complaints about stuff they've had, like uh, the Russian ads they allowed and so forth, that they do things like this occasionally. And it's it's erratic. Uh, and as you say, I think it's counterproductive. Um, I mean, what the New York Post put out, you and I are talking about that in Toronto tonight. And loads of people in Toronto know about it. And they only know about it because Twitter censored it. And there were complaints about Twitter sensing, so that became the story. Had Twitter just left it there, I doubt if one-tenth of the people who've heard about the story now would have heard about it. Right. So the irony is, by censoring it, they made it better known. Right. But, but, you know, I point to that comment by the Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, you know, you've got Louis Farrakhan, who openly spews Jew hate uh, on it. They don't have a problem with that. So they're very selective with when they want to take uh, the high road of what they perceive as acceptable well, I, comments. And so it's... Yeah. I, I think they only do it when they feel pressed in a particular moment. And they do it rarely. Uh, I mean, when you think that there are, I imagine, a billion uh, posts go up on Facebook every day. There's hundreds of thousands of hours of new YouTube videos that go mm-hmm. up every day. There's mm-hmm. no conceivable way they could have a panel or be like a publisher and and uh, take things down and edit it. How would you stay on top of it? I mean, those billion Facebook posts go up in hundreds of languages. Um, so it's you know it's the scale of the challenge is enormous. But the bottom line is we don't want private for profit corporations determining what the public can see and having the right to censor material. Right. And then there's the other side of this. People have to start being more responsible and acting like grownups and just not going off of one story. Start doing your own sourcing. If you haven't seen it in two or three sourced, uh, you know, publications, it's likely not true. And people have to start taking responsibility themselves. But you yourself um, found yourself censored by not just Zoom, but YouTube that shut down a roundtable discussion at an American university. So, you know, I, I don't, know what you were talking about but again it, it's it's this well i don't like I mean, what you have to say example. so uh, yeah there's a perfect uh, the issue you raise is a perfect example almost every university and college in north america can only run its classes or have its educational events virtually right because of the pandemic so that means it has to use youtube or or mostly zoom and what happened in the story you're mentioning what happened at san francisco state is there was a panel discussion, an academic panel was part of a program, and some people complained about one of the participants, a controversial person. Uh, And so YouTube uh, announced at the last minute that they refused to allow it to be on their platform. So the university was outraged, so they immediately turned to YouTube and started live streaming on YouTube, and 20 minutes later, YouTube cut off the live feed. 
So basically, they prevented anyone from participating or hearing the event. Now, I mean, the, the problem that poses for universities, I mean, we have academic freedom to allow universities, which are supposed to be places where all ideas can be examined, criticized, discussed, mm. debated, from doing their jobs. So the enormous power that the handful of these giant tech company platforms has uh, has an ability to totally distort public discussion, what we know as people. Yeah. Um, I mean, look at way Facebook. If you do a search on Google, for example, uh, and I do a search for the same thing, we'll get different answers because of what they know about us. They see this what we want to hear. Facebook, the you know what you get on your Facebook feed every day, and what I get is different based on what they know about us. Um, so people have the impression they're getting the news, and what they're getting is a very filtered version of the news. Uh, that these companies want to feed us, and they want to yeah. feed us this so they keep us on their platform. Right. Um, they are the cancer yeah. of society, and if we let it, they will destroy us. And it's just, I find it very, very concerning. I'm up against well, the clock, Jim, but okay. can, I have you on, can I have you on again? <laughs> I'd love to talk with you again, Alex. Thank you very much. I'll have you on again because I know it'll happen again. So it's uh, one of those I'm things sure that, it will. <laughs> sadly, sadly. You Thank care. you. I appreciate your insight into this. Okay. Bye-bye. That's Jim uh, Jim Turk, who's a director and center for free expression. Can you imagine telling a guy like that, uh, yeah, we're cutting you off, we're censoring you. Oh, okay. And it's probably some 22-year-old little dolt who lives in his granny or mother's basement and doesn't know anything about anything. And they're the ones making the decisions. It is wrong. You know, I may not agree with you, but unless you're spewing hate and inciting uh, violence, I will fight for your right to say it. And I think we have to get back to thinking like that. And uh, by the way, if you miss a show, you can get it downloaded. Just go to 640 Toronto, search on point in your uh, favorite podcast app. And that is where you'll find us. We download all the uh, good stuff on the show so you don't miss it. You, of course, can join us live Monday through Friday, 630 to 10. Alex Pearson with you on point, And this is Global News Radio.